Hey everybody, such an amazing interview today. I don't even know, I was having trouble prepping this because I didn't know like, normally I could say like we talked about this, we talked about that, but like we he touched on so many things. Ben Humble, the Humble CEO, like he, he covered just about everything. Everything you need to know in order to be successful, to be healthy, to have a great life, to, to working with your spouse. Um, everything. It's, it's, it's such an amazing interview. You guys are going to love it. Um, get a pen and paper, make notes, listen to it twice. There's, there's, there's lots of little nuggets in here that you're, that you're not going to want to miss. And the guy's so creative. He's just like me. I love it. He loves the creative stuff and how he built his business. Anyways, I'm not going to delay it anymore. Listen. In. Ben Humble, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. How you doing, man? I'm good, man. How are you? I am good. I'm good. Humble CEO. We were just talking about where did, where did humble CEO come from? Mm. So like I said, the word humble just comes from, you know, the idea that regardless of where you start in life, regardless of your oppression, you get to choose your destination, right? So a lot of folks think that they're a victim of the circumstance and they're a victim of their adversities. I think you should repurpose your adversity and make something out of it. So I like to always remember my adversity because it's my weapon. Um, you know, not something that holds me back. So that's where the whole humble thing comes from. And uh, I just rolled with it, man. I just rolled yeah. with it. I like it. I like it. So, so where did the story start? Where did you, uh, where'd your story start? So it started back in Romania during a period of communism, kind of much like what's going on right now in the world, but times 10. So yeah. no freedom of speech, you know, there's no food anywhere. You know, everybody's under communist dictatorship, propaganda on the television, you know, and, you know, they would shut the hydro down at nine o'clock at night. So that's where it started. It started with somebody somewhere telling us what to do, what to believe, what to think, the rest of it. My dad made a decision one day. My dad's a man of faith. And he said that um, I refuse to accept this reality. This is not my reality. And he made a choice to live in faith instead of fear. So we ran during a period of communism. We escaped the country illegally. And uh, we had to leave a couple of our siblings behind. There was five of us at the time. My dad ran with three. And it wasn't until about six or seven months later that we landed in a refugee camp. My mother gave birth to another sister that I had. And then finally, my dad showed up with our other two lost siblings from Romania. And that reuniting, that connection was one of the most significant things for our family. So fast forward, we were blessed enough to come to Canada. My parents had three more children. So I'm the <laughs> oldest of nine kids in the country. Wow. My parents don't speak the language. My parents don't have any specialized skills. They just work two, three jobs growing up to put food on the table. So there's a massive sense of responsibility, but also privilege. There's right. a privilege in being able to have an adversity because you don't take anything for granted and you, and you fight for everything that you want. And that's really where it all started for me was just at the beginning. Like, so that adversity or that, that thing that, that would hold a lot of people back to me has been my fuel my whole life. Wow. And you know, nine, sorry, eight brothers and sisters. I got eight. I'm the oldest of nine. Yeah. I've got six <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't live with all of them though. That's so that's, that's crazy, man. That's what was that like growing up? Responsibility, right? When you're the oldest of nine kids and your parents work two or three jobs, you become a parent. So you yeah. take care of the younger siblings and you know, I would have been like 10. My brother would have been like two or three and you know, young. So you're watching little kids as a, as a 10 or nine year old or 12 year old, you're always watching, always responsible. Mm. And it just became this thing where it wasn't always easy, man. Like, like little kids don't like to listen to their older siblings, you know, yeah. so I'm in charge. You guys, you gotta, you guys gotta do what I said. Yeah. You know, I, I'd get, I'd get whatever. And 
I'd get Victorian and, and they would uh, they would mess up. So I would like spank them. And then my dad would come home and he would spank me. He's like, don't hit my kid. <laughs> he left me in charge, man. So I had to develop this sense of just early early on responsibility, right? So yeah. like even driving my, my brothers and sisters around after school. So I didn't, I didn't maybe do a lot of stuff that like playing sports and all this other stuff. Um, I, I was busy just kind of helping around the family and the household a lot, being one of the oldest, especially mm. the first people. So that was, that was part of our, our, you know, our, our stuff when we grew up is just, we're very, very heavily focused on our family. And that was always a big piece. And, you know, we just kind of grew from there. So, so where did real estate come from? At what point did you, did you go to school? Did you, did you go to college or, or when did you get the entrepreneur uh, idea? So I would say before I was an entrepreneur, I was a polite rebel. Yeah. Right? As I grew <laughs> up, I was a polite kid, you know, because if not, my dad would spank me and rightfully so. Mm-hmm. But I always wanted to be a musician growing up. So I was like, ah, I'm not that good at school. I'm not that good at stuff. Um, turns out years later, I realized I, I recognize I have, a, I have kind of a terrible short-term memory. So like remembering stuff is hard for me. But music always kind of just came naturally. Yeah. So my dad would plot me from the age of six on the piano bench at the church because he, he became a pastor of a very, very small congregation. And he would say, play. So I'm playing piano as a 10, 12-year-old kid. And I just got this love for music throughout high school. I was just like, I'm going to be a musician. So I went to school for a couple of years and, and then realized, crap, I'm in a program geared towards teaching high school kids. Mm. And then I had all these flashbacks to my childhood of like, you know, taking care of my siblings. I'm like, that's not for me. I can't. <laughs> so I, I literally, I, I tried to switch over to university for, for business. I flunked out. I went over to the college. I flunked out. And uh, I was like, I'm just going to go to work. Yeah. And I, just, I, started, I started understanding a whole different type of education which is practical application. So I started buying real estate courses and books. And then I started to really excel because I love that stuff. I love very practical, tangible, hands-on kind of education. I don't do well with theoretical stuff I'm never going to use. So I guess that's where rebellion comes from. Yeah. But I just started consuming whatever I could find from the age of like 17, 18, consuming as much real estate and, and kind of like business books, like Rich Dad, Poor Dad and stuff like that. Why, why real estate? Like, what was it? What was that moment that you're like, wow, real estate is, is the one? So I don't know if I ever had a moment, but I had some uncles that were real estate agents and things. Yeah. And it always seemed like, um, you know, real estate would have been a vehicle that would have produced some kind of long term wealth. Mm-hmm. And that was the only thing I could really put my finger on that. If one day I owned 100 properties or 50 properties, then I could be wealthy. And I didn't know much more than that. I just realized, right. hey, if a guy's got 50 properties, He's probably, he's probably doing okay in life. So right. it just seemed to me like the most direct path to financial stability long-term was to be able to just jump into real estate. So I didn't know anything mm. else about it, man. I started studying, like everybody else, started buying some books. And slowly I started shifting and changing my viewpoint about money, business, life. And it really wasn't until the age of like 18, 19 that I started looking at money more responsibly. I'd always had a job since I was 12 years old. I've been delivering newspapers and you know, worked as a, as a, as a cart boy at the grocery store. And I always had a job, but never had money up until like 18, 19. I started like saying, maybe I can do something. You right. Know? And it came with the one fundamental realization, which is my, my parents weren't going to pay for it. Right. My parents didn't pay for my college. My mom, like my, I have the greatest parents in the world. And today being mother's day, I just had them over and they were phenomenally supportive my entire life. And they bought me my first trumpet university and they, they inspired me and pushed me to play music. And, but I knew that when it came to financial stuff, they had already done way more than they were ever, ever needed to do for me. 
brought mm-hmm. me to Canada. So I, I just developed this whole mindset like, they brought me to Canada, I'm going to take care of them for the rest of their life. Mm-hmm. They've already done the hard work. Now it's my turn to pick up the baton and run the race. So I just started taking it very seriously, you know, at that 18, 19 year old age. So, so what was the first, what was the first deal? What, what was your first uh, strategy that you went into for real estate investing? Yeah. So I'm, again, I kind of stumbled into it. I, I started a little cleaning business because that's all I knew. My parents were doing cleaning jobs and they had little janitorial companies as we were growing up. So I'm, I was familiar with vacuuming carpets and all this kind of stuff. So I started a little carpet cleaning business and janitorial. So yeah. as I'm doing this, I'm, I'm slowly joining little B&I groups, networking groups. And uh, so happened there was a broker in that group, a real estate broker, and he had a duplex. Mm-hmm. So I'm getting talking to him one day and he says, I got this duplex. I'm like, yeah, I'm looking to get into real estate, but obviously I'm not bankable. You know, I'm self-employed. I have like less than a year or two of business history. I make no money because everything gets written off. Right. I don't have any real assets and I'm and I'm 20, whatever I was, 21 years old. He says, OK, well, I've got this duplex. Maybe we could do something on it. So that led to a conversation about creative financing. And okay. I had read enough books where I started asking good questions. So the very first property I bought was a duplex at 21 years old. I remember getting into it with 100 percent financing. What? 100 percent financing. By the time I moved into <clears> the <throat> upper half of this ugly looking historic building that used to be a convenience store. He had rehabbed it and he basically sold it to me for full retail price, Mm -hmm. but he gave me financing options and helped me set it up even through his brokerage. So I didn't qualify for traditional financing like a side, but he was able to get me a B side mortgage. So I was able to go through like a trust company. And I remember moving into this place. I had a tenant downstairs and he was uh, like a lifer. He had suffered Mm -hmm. from some uh, like mental illness and stuff. So he was getting lifelong, you know, kind of subsidies and stuff for his illness. And I remember I was paying about 156 bucks a month plus utilities to live in this duplex. And I was like, okay, this is going to work for me. So it took the first one. And as soon as I moved in, I remember growing up, all we had was the family size boxes of cereal, you know, like the Cheerios, like not the honey nut ones and the fancy stuff, but like basic Cheerios. And that would be our dinner sometimes is that with a couple of jugs of milk. I remember as soon as I moved in, I went to the grocery store and I was like, boom, like 15 cereals. And I called my brother and I was like, bro, I got cereal. Come on over. We're having supper. <laughs> he was like, I'm over, dude. Like he, he flew down he flew down, and we were just rocking bowls of cereal. And that was my first deal. Yeah. At 21 years old. That's cool, man. So, so what was next? Like, how did you, you know, how'd you get to where you are now? Like what was yeah, the next so- step? Yeah. So once you, once you do your very first deal, man, something interesting happens is you develop this sense of like, it's possible. Mm. I just, I just didn't know what I didn't know, but you know, I failed math a couple times in high school. Yeah. And I, the one thing I did know was you don't have to be the smartest kid out there if you're willing to ask for help. Mm-hmm. So I, I knew I could ask for help and you know, and I did, and I just started doing that. I started talking to people. I started looking. So the first one was a completely off market deal. Yeah. Thinking back today, I'm like, my very first deal was a no money down off market deal. The second one, I'm driving in my neighborhood and I see a for sale sign and it was three blocks away. So same thing, man. I called the guy, said, Hey, I want to buy this place. I didn't yeah. have any money. I didn't have like, I had a little bit of credit. I had a $5,000 line of credit that I used for my cleaning business, but I had enough determination to just try to figure it out. Right. And I walked up to the guys like, I want to buy this property. I'm 22 years old. If you think I look young now at 35, imagine me at 22. I look like I was 12. <laughs> <laughs> he's like well is your dad gonna buy it with you i'm like no it's just me you know i'm 22 yeah. so 
you know, I worked out a second, um, you know, uh, no money down kind of deal. I did put down some money initially, but then he was yeah. able to give me back some refund and stuff like that. And I was able to again apply for a mortgage with a non-conventional type lender. And within, within six months of my first duplex, I was into my second duplex. That's crazy, man. So I'm, I'm like break even right now. You know, I've got three yeah. tenants because I rented out the top of where I was at. Yeah. I moved into this other one and had a non-conforming mother-in-law suite, which is why nobody wanted to buy this thing because it wasn't a conforming duplex. Yeah. So, you know, I moved into the main and the basement and then I went ahead and tried to rent out the upper. And I remember it was, sometimes it was some nightmare, man. It was some stuff. But what I ended up doing was I moved the lady into unit one. I eventually moved her into unit two and I filled hers with another one. So I was always just trying to shuffle things around to make it work. Yeah. And I was in that place for about two, three months. At that point, I'm getting married with my wife. I'm 23, you know, and interestingly enough, she's also from Romania. Oh, really? Yeah. She's also from Romania. We lived about an hour away from each other back in Romania and we moved about an hour away from each other across the world. I landed in Canada. She landed in the United States. Crazy. So just a powerful, you know, just for me, just like, a God-driven story where he, he knew what was going to happen. She yeah. actually won the visa lottery. So in Romania, the lottery was coming to the United States. Okay. That was like, you've made it. If you got like a, a fast track visa, green card. Right. So I escaped illegally. She got won the lottery. And I'm like, so now I tell her you won the lottery twice. Cause you met your boy. So, <laughs> but we, we were getting married and she's like, I don't like this house. Mm. She's like, but she was all about the frugality mindset. She finished college in like two years studious Romanian girl, you know, and I was like, cool. So we bought a third duplex and we closed on it the day before we got married. What? Yeah. So it was one, two, three within four blocks of each other. I had three duplexes. I was 23 years old. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, so we had these three. So once I had this one rented, yeah. I was now, you know, a little bit of positive, positive cash flow, but it took the pressure off paying bills and mm -hmm. we drove older cars or whatever else. We lived super frugally. And it allowed us to kind of really investigate real estate and keep our mind open to the possibilities. And there's this book out there. It's called The Tipping Point. A lot of what we do in life, opportunity equals skill plus chance. Mm. We all have the same chances in life, but sometimes you're kind of in the right place at the right time. But if you recognize it's a potential opportunity and do something about it, then it could truly be amazing. But a lot of people just don't, right? They just don't see yeah. it. So it's, it's, it's a mindset thing. We could talk about that. But we got married in, in uh, let's say, September of 2008 Yeah, is when we got married. And then 2009 happened. Let's talk about like the frugality thing because, uh, and, and the marriage. Because a lot of people, they struggle with the whole getting their wife or their husband on board. And early on, you need to take some risks and you need to be extremely humble and frugal, right? Because yeah. it's, if, when you're getting started out, man, it, it's not easy. You know what I mean? You, you, you need to go outside of the box. And, and a lot of times, you know, your, your significant other might not be on board. So, you know, how did it was your wife was already frugal and she understood it or did it take some convincing? Well, we, we actually like uh, we kind of got lucky with each other, man, because we didn't really talk about money a lot before we got married. But I knew her ver her family was very frugal, like her, mm -hmm. her parents came to this country with nothing. They worked factory jobs you know, and, and, and made a million dollars within 10 or 15 years of being here. Like you just saved everything. They didn't go up oh. to dinner. They didn't do any of that stuff. So she already kind of had that frugality mindset. She would mm -hmm. save all of her money. And when we got married, I realized um, quickly, like, Hey, if I got this business thing, right, I could be a, a, a I could be a, a big driver in the revenue. 
and and she would help me keep things in line because I wasn't necessarily disciplined enough to manage money. I just knew I needed to make more of it. Right. And that was always my push is we need more. But we became frugal as a lifestyle. We started budgeting together. And it wasn't like it wasn't a joint partnership. It was her. She right. was budgeting us. She'd be like, where's that six dollars you spent last week? I'm like, I don't know. Tim Hortons. Because like, <laughs> for like three, three to four years, every you need accountability, man. You need someone 100%. to be accountable. Yeah. So I don't know as a couple how you can try to keep your money separate and you can try to keep your, your, your stuff separate because it's like trying to run a race with half a leg. Like you yeah. can't do this. You got to be able to be fully engaged and fully, fully moving forward. The humble thing was simple for me. Mm -hmm. It was either my ego, you know, I could like Dave Ramsey says this thing, like you can decide to live like no one else today. So you can live like no one else tomorrow. Mm -hmm. It's either going to serve my ego and go buy nice cars and stuff. Or I was willing to just suck all that stuff up and just live for cheap and, and just so that there's a future payday that comes. And we just yeah. made a conscious decision. It was that simple. It's, so it's only did, temporary, right? It's temporary, man. I recognize that it, whether it was a year, two years, five years, 10, we were going to get to a financial position where we wouldn't have to scrimp and save anymore. But mm. I think at the beginning to develop the kind of discipline that you need, you can't manage a lot of money if you can't manage a little money. Mm -hmm. So if you can't manage the 500 bucks you have coming in, you're not going to manage 500,000 or $5 million. It's not going to happen. Yeah. You're going to be irresponsible here. So it forced us to just create an accountability and a responsibility around money. Mm -hmm. And um, it, it was probably one of the best things we've ever done is live cheap and frugally. We lived in a duplex. Like, dude, I didn't spend money on anything. Like I would go and open up the garage door for two years straight when she came home from work because I didn't want to buy a garage door opener. <laughs> Straight up. I got no problem with that. That's, that's what happened, right? She would honk, drive around yep. the block, and I'd go back and open up the garage door. That's what we did. You <laughs> yeah. know, we'd, we'd, we'd like cook at home. We wouldn't order out that much food or whatever, you know. But what happened was not necessarily in the money that we saved, but in the habits that we developed around money. The habits are the most important because if you can't develop the habits early on, you'll, you'll have horrible habits once you scale to that level, that million or 100,000 that you're making a year. Yeah, like that's, we're super on board with that too, is because if we can't, if you can't handle, like you said, the 500 bucks you have in your wallet, once you start making the millions, it'll be gone like that. That's the right? first game, man, is understanding the basics of money and understanding the discipline around it. We mm -hmm. got to recognize as people that, that we're weak, our flesh is weak and it's a muscle. You have to work the frugality muscle until you don't. Yeah. So the good thing with working out your muscles and working out the frugality muscles that we got to a point where I could no longer afford to be frugal because it was taking me away from earning and creating. Yeah. So I got to a point where save, 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 save. And one day just went click. Wow. My revenue generation ability is so much higher than me trying to save money. Then I literally stopped saving altogether. I stopped being frugal altogether. Now, what I mean by that is I don't waste money on things I don't need, yeah. but I also don't spend any serious amount of time making purchase considerations. What do you want for dinner? I doesn't care. How much yeah. is the grocery bill? Doesn't matter. How much is the car payment? Doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. We have rules now. So my wife and I have a $500 rule. If it's 500 bucks or less, we just don't talk about it because so many couples will spend so much of their time arguing over $20 problems. Mm. And that's the only conversation that they ever have with each other. And I don't think it's productive or healthy because we did that. Dude, we screwed that up all the time. We'd freaking go to the store and be like, oh, milk was three bucks. Oh, shit, why don't you get it for $2.50? You know, all this stuff that yeah. we do. And some people do that their whole lives. Mm -hmm. I literally started with a $50 rule, and then it was $100, and then it was $150, now it's $500. Bucks. And what it's done is it's allowed us to focus now on the revenue side of our business. <clears throat> and your time.
end of time. That's because right. in the beginning, you're, what you're doing is you're trading your time because you didn't have money. And then once you had enough money, you're able to actually value your time as opposed to using it in the beginning, right? I think you trade your time for money to develop the discipline and the skills yeah. around money. And then you recognize there's no trading anymore. It's just trading. You're either mm -hmm. in creation mode all day, creating revenue, or you're not. So at, yeah. at this point in my brain, I'm either creating or I'm not. And if I'm not creating, then I'm like, what am I doing right now? Mm -hmm. What am I doing? So these days, I only focus on revenue and relationships. That's it. Yeah. My key relationships, the people that I care about, whether it's customers, lenders, employees, my wife, my family, you, whoever it is I'm trying to develop a relationship with, and then mm -hmm. where's my money? Where's the revenue? That's it. Other than that, even though I might enjoy doing things like I used to cut the grass every Saturday for three hours, like good old Romanian kids cut the grass, clean the house. Every Saturday was just house day, right? And then I realized I'm like, hey, I could go out and make some money this Saturday. So I slowly started making money on Saturdays. And I was like, okay, I can't, I can't afford to just be sitting at home. Yeah. So you get to a point where now you get the benefit of being able to employ other people. So now we have somebody that cuts the grass, somebody that cleans the house, somebody that makes food, somebody that does all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it's, it's not like, oh, you're too good to do it. It's like, no, man, my highest and best use is in the revenue yeah. because people depend on me to create revenue so that they can. Earn. So I'm looking at job creation and opportunity for other people. And you have to keep pushing and pushing your call it, you know, dollars per hour, whatever. But for me, it's just, if you want to do more in life, you have to create the time. You're not mm -hmm. going to find it. You'll never find more time. You have to create it by, by challenging the activities you spend your time on. I'm glad you brought that up because that was exactly where I was going next is that, you know, I'm, I'm right at that tipping point right now too, where I'm starting to outsource a lot of the stuff like lawn care, like cleaning, like even cooking. And, uh, you know, I've started hiring people as well to kind of take care of my day-to-day -day tasks with the business. What point do you think is a good time for people to start progressively start hiring out for those kind of small tasks or bringing in employees? I would say the moment that you finally develop the discipline to focus on your skill, yeah. because a lot of people don't have the discipline. They're going to hire somebody to cook and clean, and they're going to sit at home watch Netflix. Right. The moment you're like, I'm pushing towards revenue, I'm pushing towards purpose and growth, right away, get rid of stuff. Mm -hmm. Because there's so many five and six and seven dollar an hour things that you do that we do that we don't need to do. Okay. We waste so much time. I read the book out there, Four Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss. Mm -hmm. and as soon as I read that book, I was like, man... I'm probably wasting 20, 20 hours a week on stuff that I could do in two hours. I'm just not being smart. See, yeah. I believe you do more and then you do a better. So in business, do as much as you can until you hit a roadblock, then you got to do a better. And then yeah. you do more and then you do a better. And then you do more. A lot of people are just trying to do more all the time. I want to work harder. Dude, you're not going to work harder than the guy at Tim Hortons who puts in a 12-hour shift. Yeah. You're not. You can't, you're not going to work harder. So a lot of entrepreneurs, we have this stupid mindset that I hear sometimes like, oh, just work harder than – the guy on the factory line that works at Ford's that gets up at 5 a.m. and comes home at 8 p.m. because he pulled an extra shift, you're not working harder than that guy. Mm -hmm. Are you working better? Do you have a better way for creating profit? And I'm calling it creating profit, not earning money because there's yeah. a big difference to me. One's a business owner and one's an employee mindset. So we got to have that distinction. Mm -hmm. But I think it's, it's better. I'm actually working. How do I put this? I'm probably <laughs> like working, working less hours today and making way more money than I've ever made. But I'm, you're I'm effective. Really you're being productive. The right stuff. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and yeah, I, you got a really powerful charisma, man. <laughs> like your energy, your energy is amazing. <laughs> uh, you got lots of it. Where does this come from? Like yeah. what drives you? Mm. Dude, you know what it is, man? Sometimes you develop a zest for life when things start winning. 
as a, you know, when you finally get these little wins and they compound and they come bigger wins and bigger wins and bigger wins, I, I just have this massive overwhelming sense of like, dude, I'm so blessed every day. Well, I can, why, I can see the gratitude on your face. It's, yeah, yeah. Why, why would I complain? Why would I be upset? Like problems happen, you know, stuff hits the fan, all kinds of crap goes on. But what's the point of sitting and focusing on the negative? Like I was thinking about this today, actually, you know, for my own, for my own show that I do. And I'm thinking about this thought, like, I don't need, I don't need you to tell me what your beliefs are. I'm just going to talk to you for two minutes. Your attitude will tell me everything I need to know about you. Mm -hmm. Your attitude is a byproduct of your belief system. If all day in your brain, you're thinking negative thoughts, you're thinking criticism, you're thinking comparison, you're thinking all these things, that's the vocabulary you're going to have. Mm -hmm. So if you want to fix this, then just fix this. It's that simple, man. Just practice as if practice gratitude as if you were grateful. You know, thank mm. God I've got what I've got today. Thank you for this awesome day. Thank you. I'm about to wake up and do some awesome stuff. Cause that's how you're going to trick yourself. At some point you've got to change your mindset. So what you see here, all this energy is a byproduct of what's in here. I'm dude. I wake up every day. Like what am I creating today? Mm. I got, I got amazing stuff. When you finally get to a point and I call it the million dollar mark, we worked our ass off and I had this goal to become a millionaire by the age of 30. Right. And I worked my ass off, worked my ass off and I did this the hardcore way. Right. You know, buying properties, flipping properties, landlording, all this other stuff. I remember sitting down at one Christmas because every Christmas we sat down and did our net worth calculator. And my wife and I are looking at this number, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, well, are we there? Are we there? Are we there? And we overshot by like 200 grand. So our net worth was $1.2 million on paper, right? All the properties, real estate, assets that we had minus liabilities equals net worth. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking at her and we had all these plans, dude. We're going to like millionaire party, shopping spree, Lamborghini, new car for you. Boom, 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 boom. And uh, we went to bed. We did nothing. So I'm like, okay. And then I realized something. You see, it was never the money. The money was just the driver. But the real asset or the real thing that I gained was who I had to become in pursuit of that goal was mm -hmm. so much more valuable than the actual dollar amount. You see, I didn't need the cars. I didn't need the stuff. I liked it. I wanted it. But I was like, thank God for who I've had to become. Mm -hmm. Discipline, the self-sacrifice, the learning how to sell, all the skills, you know, the mindset. Like when you're a business owner and you're pushing for that goal, you can't afford to live in scarcity. It's not about I can't. It's about how can I every single day, every single day. So from that point in my life, I recognized, I was like, I now finally get to be an authentic version of myself. Up until then, I try to please people. I try to please customers. I try to do all this stuff. After the million dollar mark a few years ago, I said, I'm just going to be me. I don't give a shit anymore. I'm being exactly who I am. And you know who I am? I'm more loud. I'm probably more aggressive. I have fun. You know, I do all kinds of cool stuff. I'm just going to start being me. So I developed that, went back to who I was. Mm. And, and as a result of that, I just get to be me all day, dude. I'm not here to impress people. You know why? Because I don't need to. Because if back in the day it was I had to impress you so I could put food on the table and live my conservative little lifestyle. Now it's like I can be me because I don't need you. I don't need your money. I don't need your validation. I don't need your criticism. or like, I don't need anything from anybody. I'm good. Mm -hmm. And what's happened is I also found my audience in the same time. Yeah. Because there's That's plenty important. of people just like me who love who I am, exactly who I am. And for me being a Christian, it's like, I recognize you're already so inherently worthy, yet we're all trying to prove our worth to other people all the time. So it was liberating, dude. And I think that our mind is so powerful that whatever problem you feed it, your, your subconscious will solve. The problem is that we feed ourselves $20 problems all day. And we don't ever feed our mind bigger problems. And that's why we never, we never solve bigger things. Like, 
dude, you want to be a millionaire? You have to start, you have to start solving million dollar problems. Not how do I put groceries on the table this week? Not have a nine to five shift to take care of this week. So I just removed so many of those problems from my brain. So now I get to be an artist again, like I was as a child. I get to create stuff. I'm like, what do I want my life? I'm like, oh, it's humble thing. I want to drive a white on white Lamborghini. Yeah. Why I'm going to create this whole thing. I'm, I want to ride motorcycles. So my life, and the way I think about it is my modern life started at 30. Right. That's, you know? my that's old powerful, life, man. My old life was 21 to 30. Those nine years was my period of hustle. Yeah. was my period of discovering self-identity, was my period of compromise, because I, I think I made compromise. I didn't go on trips. I didn't drive nice cars. I, I just didn't, right? I just, I hustled. And I think we have different seasons in our life. And I don't mm-hmm. want somebody at home watching this to compare their season to my season. I'm in a different spot in life because I've gone through the season. And I believe that when you first get started, you have to go through a season of winter. You've got to learn to discipline. You've got to save your money. You've got to be frugal. You've got to, you've got to do the stuff you don't want to do and sacrifice. Go clean carpets like me at 2 o'clock in the morning after the bars close because people are puking all over those carpets. And i got to be there. To, i, I got to do that work, that servant work. Mm-hmm. So I can develop this thankful attitude. So when you finally get to the other season of spring, it's beautiful because you can appreciate spring so much more. And the things that happen is there's so much abundance in spring, not one car, one motorcycle, another car, none of this stuff is going to bring you fulfillment, but it's just nice to have this stuff. It's another flower. So I'm living in gratitude every day. It's Mm -hmm. a long winded way of saying, you know, it's just, it's a product of my mind is the attitude and the energy. Dude, if you love life all day and you're on vacation and you're whatever you love to do, maybe it's skydiving. If you're skydiving, aren't you happy? Yeah. I just feel like I'm skydiving all day. You're doing what makes you happy every day, right, man? Yes, sir. How do you, how do you, how do you teach that to people who aren't at that stage yet? <laughs> it's, it's, it's hard, man. It's hard. I can remember, you know, being, you know, early on and not getting that. I'm like, no, man, teach me how to do that shit. Yeah. And, 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 and someone telling me, no, mindset's everything, man. It's, it's yeah. hard. It's hard to consume. Well, it's interesting. I think at the end of the day, you don't teach people. All you can do is help them discover what they truly want out of life. Cause you know, I've yeah. got a membership company now that we run. We're actually Canada's fastest growing and largest online real estate community right now, Cashflow tribe. And um, what I recognize with mentoring people, we got people at different ends of the spectrum from mm. brand new people to mastermind people. It's about what do you really want? Yeah. And then if you want it, you have to understand that there will be a price. Mm-hmm. That's a maturity, man. There's a maturity and understand there's a price because I think a lot of us, we want it without the price. Hey, I want to be financially successful and drive a Lamborghini. Yeah, but are you willing to pay the price? Are you willing to sweat it out for a few years? You know, really? Because if you are, you don't have to, you don't have to create all this emotion and whatever. It's just a matter of tactical execution of the work and then you'll have it. But so many of us focus on the emotional side effects, the emotional consequence, the emotional stuff that we never get started. There's so many people who are so self-defeating, man. They don't believe in themselves. They really don't. They're just, they're stuck. But then you meet somebody who does. I've got some amazing mentorship students and they're just like, I know I can do this. I'm like, and that's why you will. Because if you actually, believe it's possible, it will be possible. Like, listen, dude, my ass ain't getting COVID. You know why? Because I don't believe that shit's possible. So I'm going to act in accordance to that, man. I'm not going to live in fear and live in scarcity and live in all this stuff. And like, I'm just going to, it's self-induced. Yeah. So much of our depression is a self-induced thing right? Anxiety is self-induced. We're consuming somebody else's agenda and we put it in our brain 
and it becomes selfishness. Now, I'm not, I don't want to discount people who are actually getting sick and people who are medically, whatever. I get that. My point is though, so much of what we have is because we believe it's coming. Oh, I'm going to get sick. And then you will. Mm -hmm. Dude, I'm going to get rich. That's what goes in my brain. And I'm going to help and serve millions of people in my lifetime. Because I've only got one clear message. I don't care where you start. Your oppression. I don't care about your scarcity. I don't care about whatever, whatever thing that held you back. You can use that as a weapon and you can create an amazing life for, your, for yourself. But it's a choice. Your adversity is not your downfall. Your adversity is a weapon if you choose that it is. So I have to believe that if I'm going to live it out. Otherwise, mm-hmm. guess what I am? A straight hypocrite, which is my biggest pet peeve in life, is hypocrites, right? So I got to drink my own Kool-Aid before I can, I can preach this stuff to you. Imagine if I, if I left here and I was all depressed and I, I go and I'm gaining 60 pounds and I'm eating crap and you know, I'm, 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 I'm evil to all the people that work with me and, I, you know, and I'm not managing my money. Pro- like, dude, that's just hypocritical. That wouldn't work. Let's talk about that. And yeah. that's a good segue. I, was, I wanted to bring that up was that, you know, I watched something you did a little while ago, all this talk about mindset fitness. You know, you talked a little while ago, I saw a video or something like that. You were, you, you got a handle on your health and your fitness. That's, yeah. And that's, that's something ambitious entrepreneurs struggle with early on is, is trying to find the time to be healthy and hustle in those first nine years. Mm-hmm. So how did you going back? Like, how did you manage your time early on? And how are you managing it now to, to keep your health and your fitness on track? Yeah, the answer is, I won't bullshit you, I didn't. I screwed it up, man, for a long time. I sacrificed my health for my business when I got started. That's what mm-hmm. I did. I would work late evenings. I would come home, smash McD's, smash Burger King, and Whopper combos, all that stuff. And for me, it was almost this thing like, I deserve it. I deserve to you know, eat this food. I deserve, especially as a, as a kid who came up with not a lot of food options, like we always had enough, but it wasn't like you had variety. So when I, when I finally had a credit card and money, I'm, dude, I like to eat. I love food, right? Mm-hmm. And I didn't. Dude, I had a food addiction. I'd come home. And what happened is I started off as a, as a slender dude at a buck 20. And, you know, within a matter of five or six years, I was 185, 190 pounds, which is big for my frame. That was fat, straight up fat. I remember mm-hmm. going home to Romania for the first time. I've only been back one time. And my cousins over there, you know, they're all more active and healthy. They look at me like, is everybody in Canada so fat? I'm like, what do you mean? Like, oh, you're fat. I'm like, no, I'm not. Like, but then I realized data or drama, right? Dude, when I wore a t-shirt, I'd always wear an undershirt. You know that move? That's a trick, right? That's a trick fat guys do. Where we tuck in the undershirt and then we wear another one over it that's untucked. Guess what? It keeps things a little bit tighter. It's like spanks for men. (laughs) I had to come with the realization with the fact that I was just straight fat. Yeah. And, And I realized, I'm like, you know what? If I truly want to live an amazing life and I want to push for all this stuff, I can't let something like cholesterol or high blood pressure or obesity be my downfall. There's no way I can't. So I think when your purpose becomes big enough, you create the time, you prioritize it. Yeah. So what I did was I just started prioritizing my, my fitness. And uh, I went on this radical thing where I lost like 30, 40 pounds. I let it, I let it hit me again and I gained it back, you know, and then I hit it again. But this time, the second time I gained accountability, I hired a mentor, I hired a fitness coach. I was like, I cannot afford to be fat. So I think what happens, man, is we just don't gain accountability in that area of life. We just assume that we're going to do it on our own. And the biggest thing I've learned over the course of my last 12 years, when I finally hired a mentor in my business, in my fitness, in my life, it changed radically. Mm-hmm. Because up until that point, I just didn't know what I didn't know. I didn't realize the power of accountability and the power of mentorship. I thought mentors were for lazy people. I was like, dude, I ain't lazy. I go to work. 
I yeah. do this, I do this. But what happened was you start making these compromises with yourself. You start becoming unethical because if your belief system is that I need to be in shape and then you're not in shape, you're out of ethics. Yeah. Your integrity is suffering. So that's why you feel like shit all the time is because you're not living within your ethics. So I messed it up until I didn't. And I just stopped messing it up as much. And I love food. I love this stuff. But I also was like, I'm determined to win. So what happens, dude, like I said, when you start winning, I started winning in my money. I started winning in my fitness. I started winning in my, in my marriage, you know, better and better because, you know, it puts a lot of strain on a marriage trying to build a business. Mm. I just came back and I, now I have basically four or five core things every day. It's my mind, my body, my spirit, my relationships, and my money. If I hit these five things every day, it's a good day. I check the box. But that means you got to be dialed into those five. Mm-hmm. No, no excuses, man. It, whether you do it for a half an hour each or an hour each, whatever it is, but hit those five every day. And then what's going to happen is that compounding effect or that slight edge will yeah. start taking shape. What you're looking at is, is just the compounding effect of somebody who's just been doing it for long enough. There's no secret, zero secret in this world. It's about just doing the things consistently every day that nobody wants to do. Yeah. My fitness, to answer your question, I read the book, The Slight Edge, and it taught me the reason why we don't work out, bro, it's just as easy to do a workout today as it is to push it until tomorrow. Absolutely. And that's why we don't do it. Because tomorrow it's too, we're it's too it. easy not to. Tomorrow we're gonna do it. The next day we're gonna do it. I only work out five days a week. And I realized that you know what? That's exactly why I didn't get my stuff in check. Is because it was easy not to. So I just mm-hmm. made a consistent decision every day. Don't be working out three days a week. Seven, seven days. I don't care if one of them is a straight walk, walk mm-hmm. around the block. You've got to develop these habits. And when you do, you become a superhuman. People are like, dude, how do you got all this energy, right? You ask me how you got energy? Dude, because I'm a superhuman. My power is that, in, in my power is consistency every day. Routine. What happens is you look for me like, dude, this guy's got everything. Money, cars, relationship, becoming a modern day renaissance man. So it's possible for everybody. No excuses, everybody. But to answer your first question, you've got to make a decision. Are you willing to pay some kind of price? And the mm-hmm. bigger the price you're willing to pay, the bigger the result you can have. It's that simple. And, and the definition of decision, right? An actual, you need to decide, not a, I want to. You need to decide, right? Well, decision, dude, decision comes from a place of conviction, I believe. You know, because a lot of people say, hey, I'll do this. No, no, are you convicted? Like mm-hmm. in, your, in your heart, do you feel that you have to do this to live out your purpose? That's conviction. Yeah. Yes, I do. I will never be happier fulfilled until I do this. That's a conviction. Yeah. And then if you want to take that conviction and you want to execute that conviction, there's only one way, accountability. You, somewhere, somehow, it, you cannot leave it up to your flesh. You have to have somebody else who's non-emotional tell you, get your ass up and go to work. Yeah. Did you do your calls today? Did you do this today? Did you work on your body today? So I, I realized my secret is like, dude, I just have an accountability partner in every area of my life. It's, it's so much less stressful and so much less anxiety and so much less drama in my life when it's not my decision. Yeah. I tell my coach, kick my ass if you need to. Kick my ass if I don't get up. And he does. Dude, what are you doing? Yeah, I'm messing up. I'm sorry, man. He's like, get up, go. Time to go. Because the flesh is weak, bro. On Sunday afternoon when you're trying to chill and watch Netflix, the flesh is weak. So, but accountability comes from other people. You cannot hold yourself accountable. I think it, 
you have to, at some point, if you're going to be responsible for what you don't have, you've got to gain accountability. Too many people are responsible for the little and they're not responsible for what they don't have. Mm. You want to change your life. This is what I mean. We're responsible for our thousand bucks a week, our Netflix subscription, our food, our beer budget, whatever. We're responsible for this, but now you're neglecting what you could have. Yep. So how about being responsible for changing your family legacy? How about being responsible for becoming a millionaire in five years? How about being responsible for not having to worry about financial stuff? How about being responsible for the body you should have instead of the body you do have? So I just decided to stop focusing on what I had and start pushing for the things I didn't have. And that's where my responsibility lies is when what I don't have. And it's crazy. And you know what, you know, who takes care of the stuff I do have my accountability partners. Takes a little bit of you. I just switched it, man. I just switched it, dude. I just, you know, other people can help you grow if you're willing to be, be honest and be humble enough to ask for help. It's crazy. All this stuff has nothing to do with real estate, eh? Real estate's a byproduct, man. It could be selling cars or ho-hos. It doesn't matter what it is. iPhones. Real estate investing is one of the most self-disciplined games out there. Yeah. Because it requires you to create something from nothing. People don't understand the game. You know, I, I heard it from one of my mentors, and I've always remembered this. He said, so many people are busy playing checkers that they don't understand that the winners play chess. Mm. That's so many real estate, and there's so many examples of this, man, like real estate investors. I went to work. I saved my money. I have a down payment. I bought a duplex. And in one year, I made $200 of positive cash flow. That's checkers, my man. Mm-hmm. You'll never be wealthy in that game, ever. So what do you think separates those average entrepreneurs from the greats, the ones who take you know, the action? Do you think it's DNA? you think it's developed? I think everything is nurtured. It's the dude, it's not about where you grew up or your DNA. Like none of that stuff matters. It's about, it's about being willing to find a better way all the time. You see a lot mm. of people, I'll give you real estate as an example. People take what's been created for home ownership as a, as a tool. So you go to the bank, 5% down, you know, you do this, you do this. Now you own a home. They've taken that and they're trying to fit a, a, a square into a round hole. Mm-hmm. Oh, I want to buy 15 properties. The bank will only let me buy five doors. Can't go beyond five doors. Cause it wasn't designed for you to become an investor. It wasn't mm-hmm. designed for you to be, to leverage and create wealth. The bank, the conventional retail bank was not designed for you to make money with. It was designed to sell you, a, to sell you a product to get you into home ownership. The yeah. bank is there for the bank, not for you. Well then how do I buy? Like, dude, in my case, we've done 240 deals in Southwestern Ontario. Dude, how, how did you buy all those? The answer is I didn't go to the bank. Because when I went to the bank at 20, 21 or 22 years old to get my first couple properties, they told me the same thing. You don't qualify. You don't have this. You don't have this. You don't have this. And I realized there has to be a different alternative to the standard option. So I think to answer your question, great entrepreneurs, and I define those people as people who, you know, impact the world in a meaningful, positive way and people who create serious revenue. That's, that's great entrepreneur. They are willing to create a different opportunity. They're not looking at fitting the square into the circle. Mm. So many other people are trying to fit the square into the circle. They're trying to fit their nine to five job in the world of entrepreneurship. They're trying to apply the same strategies that they've used to buy a home. They're trying to apply the exactly the same approach to creating revenue and wealth and real estate. It does not work. It's a different game. You're playing checkers. You're doing one hop at a time. And somebody somewhere told you that's how you do it. 
And here's the problem with people. Everybody's so focused on giving advice, dude. Advice is free. So much advice in the world, right? Advice comes from people who love you. Advice mm -hmm. comes from your friends, your family. But advice is not counsel. See, I love counsel. My mastermind is called the counsel because counsel comes from somebody who's been there, who's doing it, who's a practitioner, understands the challenges, and can mm. look at what you're doing through a microscope and say, this is what you're missing here, here, here. Yeah. So I think the biggest problem, my friend, is that people just don't know what they don't know. It's ignorance. You're going to work 20 years to buy five or 10 duplexes, and you think you're a success. And then some, some other person comes up and within five years buys 50 or 100. He just did it better. Yeah. He found a better way. Now, did he discover it on his own? Probably not. Did he get somebody who showed him? Probably yes. There's just a better way. There's always a better way. So pay for it. I believe in paying to play. Yeah. Again, when there's a price, mentorship. What's the point of spending 20 grand on a mentor so that you can save five years of your life, 10 years of your life? People are so afraid of spending money on a mentorship. They see it as an expense. The money's not for you. It's an, it, it, the money's not for your mentor. It's for you. It's an investment in yourself. Yeah. You spend 50 grand to go to college or 100 grand to go to college, but you won't invest 20,000 in your personal development. So one of my biggest secrets, my brother, is that I put over 200 grand right here. That's it. Oh, dude, how do you know all this stuff? I put 200 grand here. I hired people yeah. and through their experiences in their life, they've, they've helped me understand and give me better perspective over creating wealth. It's that simple. So- you know, I know it sounds easy and it's a lot of work, but it takes a willingness. Mm -hmm. That's the hard part. It takes yeah. a willingness to do it. I mean, yeah, or you can read it online, right? You can find it all for free eventually, but how yeah. long is it going to take you? Is it going to take you three times as long? Just like well, you said, yeah. is it going to take you 20 years? Or is it going to take you five, uh, five years? But dude, what are you going to find online? Information. See, information has never been the problem. People mm. are always looking for more data, more information, more information. I, know, I talked with a guy yesterday. He's like, dude, I've read every book on real estate. I still can't buy real estate. Information ain't the problem. It's accountability. You're mm -hmm. not executing on it because you lack the confidence to pull the trigger and do the work. Yeah. Oh, I called three sellers today. I didn't get a deal. Call 30. The only reason you're not spending 10 hours doing it is you lack the confidence that's going to pay you the result that you want. So mm -hmm. it's, it's a lack of confidence, which comes from a, an insecurity that people have, right? They're insecure. They, they, they're afraid of the failure. They're afraid of the doubt. There's so much doubt planted in people. Oh, man. My cousin Jenny is going to tell me she was right when yep. I tried doing real estate and it doesn't work and she's going to be right because I'm going to fail. Fuck cousin Jenny. Straight up. She doesn't know anything. She's never done it, but that's what we do. There's somebody in your life. Everybody usually has one person, a bully, mm -hmm. a parent, somebody somewhere told you, ah, it doesn't work. Ah, only rich people do this. Ah, rich people steal and they're greedy. Ah, whatever you hear is it gets ingrained, man. That's why I'm such a big believer about your environment, dude. So when I told you earlier that if I just listen to you speak, I know exactly how you think. Mm. I know exactly where you're hanging out. Your environment is so important. So if you want to change your habits, you want to change the, you want to change your wealth trajectory, change your environment, get around people that are winning, get a mentor, join a community, join something where people are actually doing the work in our practitioners. As much as your family loves you or don't love you, your family has two big problems. I call it comparison and compassion. Comparison is this. Ah, you know, it doesn't work, blah, blah, blah. Look what he did. Look what she did. Look what you do. Look what you did. Comparing you to everybody else and comparing themselves to you. That doesn't help you. Or compassion. Oh, 
I have some sympathy on you, little John. You don't need to do all this. Don't just be happy with what you got. You don't need more. You don't need to be like those greedy, greedy rich people. You don't want other people's compassion and you don't mm. want the criticism. You want something that's going to help you actually push and grow. So whether it's well-intended or not well-intended, you can't listen to your friends. and family. My parents aren't rich. My parents didn't teach me this stuff. They just didn't know. I had to literally go and hire people that have done it. So you can start with reading books, read some books to start changing what you think is possible and then get around people that are actually doing it. And it's just, it's powerful how it can trans, you know, change your whole life. But you're right, dude. It's not about real estate. You want to be a successful real estate investor. You want to do hundreds of deals. You know, you want to make millions of dollars of revenue every year. Got to get around different people. I mean, it's that simple. Because when you, when you get around a group of killers in real estate and they're doing deals and it's working, guess what you're going to want to do? You're going to want to gravitate. You want to you be relevant. You want to associate with those people. You're going to naturally skill up and level up. When you hang around with people all day that just drink and hang out and criticize and gossip, guess what you're going to do? You're going to be a product of your environment. If you mm-hmm. join a gang, you're going to do gang-related activities. If you join a real estate mastermind group of high performers, you're going to start doing those activities. So it's it's... That's the biggest secret in life, man. Get around people who have what you want. And, and I know it sounds crazy and it's like, oh, it can't be that easy. It is that easy. Yeah. You'll learn over there what you don't know. Yeah, that's, that's, that's crazy, man. Thank you so much for sharing that. I, I'm thinking about this. I know that when someone finishes, if we were to end the, the, the episode right now, I know that I'm going to get a bunch of people reaching out to me like, whoa, 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 wait a second. How the hell did he buy a house for no money down? Or two houses for no money down? Or like, you know, because I get a lot of people reaching out to me. Hey, man, you know, would you be willing to sell one of your properties and give me the, you know, the down payment money? So, you know, I don't know if that particular strategy is still relevant today, you know, with today's mortgage rules and stuff. But would you be able to share how exactly you structured that deal? Sure. And I'll just preface this, man. Every strategy works at any given time. But a Mm. lot of people are looking at fitting it within a box. You know, so people are like, how do you do a vendor take back mortgage in today's day and age? Don't go to the place that tells you you can't. Meaning right. I'm a private lender, dude. I've given 100% financing because I've got a private mortgage company. I've done dozens and dozens of deals in the last three years where I've given 100% structured finance to borrowers, right? They purchased the property from me and they got the financing. Well, why would you do that, Humble? Because it's good business for me. Because yeah. they, you know, they were able to get into a property. You know, there's other ways that we can evaluate and offset risk. The only reason people don't like 100% financing is because they don't, they don't know how to mitigate the downside exposure. Yeah. So here's a big one. Be, become highly relational, not transactional. Meaning this, I spend time with the people I lend money to. I want to get to know who they are mm-hmm. so that I can, I can understand who they are and are they the kind of person that's going to get a second job at McDonald's to pay me back if they have to or not. Right. The bank's problem is simple. They never get to know you. It's a bunch of numbers on a page, and the only way they can mitigate risk because they don't bother to get to know you is to make you put a bunch of money down. Yeah. So how do you get a no money down deal right now? Number one, as a vendor take back, if you're willing to pay top dollar, which you're probably going to, right? Because it's either price or terms in real estate, always will be, right? If you want to get the terms, you got to pay the price. Yeah. You go to somebody who's got a 200,000, like in my case, it was 127 grand, and um, the seller, who is this broker, So I'm going to hold a portion of the mortgage for you. The bank was willing to do 75% loan to value, right? So they gave me a mortgage for that at whatever it was, four and a half percent back in the day. And he's like, I'll hold the second position mortgage for you behind them at 25% LTV. 
Because he had that equity already in place, because right? Because he had the equity yeah. already in the property. Now, it wasn't yeah. a conventional bank we did first. Because how do we know this? Conventional banks don't want you to put secondary financing on. They want you yeah. to put a down payment. But I said at the beginning of this, I actually got connected with the trust company. There's plenty of B lenders and trust companies that don't give a rip as long as their position reflection is only 75% loan to value or less. Right. 25% is the CMHC qualifier. So if you want to, if you want to put um, less than 20 or 25% down, then you have to qualify through Canada Mortgage Housing Corporation, right? The mortgage yeah. insurance company. So as a result, you're not just getting the bank's approval when you buy a house in Canada, you're also getting CMHC approval. And right. they're more stringent than the bank is because they're the insurer. If you bail on your piece of property, you didn't put 20% down. And if the bank can't sell it when you bail, it goes back to CMHC and they're going to sell it. So mm -hmm. if you don't want to like worry about CMHC approval, then guess what you do? You bypass CMHC. Well, you put 20% down or more. Well, if the bank won't allow you to do that, then you go to another lender who will. Mm -hmm. And then you find a seller willing to hold the difference. Now you get 100% finance. So we got to understand there's so many options. You know, there's over 10% of, uh, of Canadian mortgages are held privately, you know, and people just think that the, everything goes through TD, Scotia, CIBC, and I'm telling you, no, it doesn't. That's what homeowners do. Investors do not. So much money for mortgages is held in RSPs, TFSAs, cash, private, private investors, corporations. You have to get exposure to people that are lending. I love lending money. You know why? Because I'm an investor. And there's different kinds of investors. There's the real estate asset investor who mm -hmm. wants to own the real estate. And then there's the mortgage note investor. Mm -hmm. You want to want to own the note. I want to own the mortgage receivable. I would rather be the person who owns the mortgage on your house, not your house. Why? See, there's actually a win-win business there for both parties. We just don't even even know that this world exists. Mm. So because you're looking at a, at a surface level as a buyer, as a homeowner, right? You're not seeing. It's all perspective, dude. So what happens is like I bought all these rentals at 12 or 13 rentals in 2010. I did 10 back-to-back -back burrs, right? Buy, renovate, refinance, rent, repeat. So I did 10 back-to-backs. I borrowed the money privately for every one of those. Yeah. I came up with this little portfolio where I was making about 3,000 bucks a month within a matter of a year and a half. So I started asking my tenants questions like, hey, why don't you guys own a house? Just curious. And they're like, well, we can't get financing. We can't get this and this. But they're good people. They've got good jobs. They've even got okay credit. I'm like, there's probably a whole group of Canadians that are in this subprime category. They don't qualify for A side, but they're just below the cusp. Mm. You know? I'm not talking about the people with no jobs, no income, no nothing. Like, they can't qualify and they shouldn't because they, they can't manage the payments. So I said, I wonder if I could take some of my properties, sell them, and then instead of taking cash, if I could actually hold the mortgage for a potential buyer, could I charge more? The answer mm. was yes. Were there enough buyers in the marketplace that wanted to own a house, but didn't have the money? The answer was also yes. Mm. I did my very first deal and the mortgage payment on that property at 9% interest was about $200 more than it would have cost her to rent in that neighborhood. So her choice was a fully renovated house from me for $200 more and it's hers or something that was not renovated, kind of ugly, outdated for 200 bucks less. She chose this. And yeah. by me pushing on that thought, which took me months to think about this and put it together, I created a whole new business. I sold all of my rentals. And then I did about 100 private mortgage deals. So buy, sell, finance, boom. Buy, sell, finance, boom. I ended up with a mortgage portfolio that still spits over 30 grand a month right now completely passively, like I'm talking really passive, not like rental passive, because I'm the bank. Just like TD's passive with your mortgage, I'm yeah. passive with my mortgages. 
And what I did was it was a win-win. That property that she bought for 120 grand off of me, today's worth about, is worth about $210,000. She got tremendous equity within six years, mm. right? She got to own a piece of real estate that was fully renovated and she got financing from me. I got to sell my properties for higher than what, was, what it was worth back then and also has been able to capture a mortgage note, a mortgage receivable. So, okay. Good. Were you doing 100% financing on that yes. for, the, for the Empire? Wow. So I've done, I've done over 90, 100% financing deals. Crazy, man. You're like, well, how is that possible? Because I do them. I'm telling you it's possible. You're just not looking. We're like, well, and then there's all these other thousand questions, right? After that. Well, I mean, how, what's the risk? The risk is I bought it. I had about 85 into this and I sold it for 120. The risk is I have to take it back as the lender at 85, which is my actual cost, right off the profit and try to sell it again for about 20. That's my risk. I think a lot of people are afraid of doing structured finance because they don't understand the risk. They don't understand the deal. They get into stuff they don't have a clue, AKA stock market. Oh, I lost money in the stock market because you don't have a clue about how it really works. Mm -hmm. Nobody does. So I like to put my money in things where I can develop control. So all of my, so it's no different than me selling a, prof, a property. My profit, I would take and just put it back in the, in the mortgage, second mortgage, third mortgage, whatever. Mm. I created all, I created money on my money and then it became a compounding residual because money every, there's a rule of 72 money doubles every seven years if it's invested at 10% interest. And I wanted to be on the winning side of that, not a borrower, but a lender. So every seven years, my mortgage portfolio money rep doubles, boom, boom. So it goes 2 million to 4 million to 8 million to 16 million to 32 million. That's yeah. what happens every seven years. So I want to be on that side of the coin, not on the borrowing side of the coin. Absolutely. But that whole idea, brother, I didn't read it in the book. What happens is I just kept feeding my brain problems. Mm -hmm. And what happens is when you're sleeping or when you're doing activities like me riding motorcycle, I start connecting dots, man. You know, you know when you're out like doing something you're passionate about and you start having these great ideas, I just started connecting dots. And eventually it turned into a mortgage business. Fuck, man. Create, create. I'm telling you, everybody's trying to copy the strategy. What's the best strategy? There's no best strategy, man. Create the one that works for you based on your objectives and based on the resources that you have. But until you even think it's possible, your ass will never get out of bed and think about it. You're just going to sit here and, and give me excuses why you can't make money during, during freaking pandemics. Dude, there's always a pandemic. Next week will be another one. Next year will be another one. It's an election year, dude. I want people to wake up a little bit and start doing some math on what's going on, right? Do you think it's, mm. you think it's an interesting time why there's a pandemic now and there's an election in November? Like, guys, grow, like we need to start thinking differently. And maybe it's because I come from communism. I just refuse to accept depression. But I'm always asking how, how, how. That's really my only answer in life. How? Humble's about how. Not about assuming. Too many people are assuming. They're, too many people are too damn smart, bro. I'm, I'm happy I'm a little dumber. I just, I just don't know what I don't know. And I, and I know that I don't know. Mm. I just, I go and figure it out. I know it sounds arrogant, but I'm telling you folks, it's the only way is to stay dumb and humble and just keep asking better questions and keep getting around better people. And what'll happen is you'll start leveling up because the person you are today, Ed Milet said this beautiful thing. He's like, man, every 12, every 12 months, I want to double who I am. My effectiveness, my compassion, my income, my generosity my understanding, my awareness, every 12 months. So by the time I'm 70 years old, that person is so great, I can't even imagine what he looks like. 
And so many of us, dude, we get to 16 and we're the same person at 16. Because we stop growing. You know, so I think, man, like just keep growing every day. I don't care how old you are. Like it doesn't matter where you're starting today. It doesn't matter what your oppression is. It doesn't matter what your limiting beliefs are. It doesn't matter, you know, what, what, your, what your vice is. Start today. Can you get 1% better every day? If you can, it'd be a radical difference in a couple of years. But you got to practice 1% better every day. I am glad I'm not following you on stage. Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> man, oh, man. Come on, man. I, I, <laughs> the bag's overflowing with nuggets. <laughs> I'm just dropping them, man. Like, I, I don't hold back on this stuff, man, because I'm, I'm hoping that if one thing I say reaches a member of your audience, mm. it's all worth it, man. Somebody, sometimes you just need a, a, a word of inspiration for, or you just need to see some guy who's seemingly average do it. And yeah. you're like, I can do that. If this cat can do it, I can do it. And I'm just trying to encourage people. That's my whole mission here is encourage people to just say it's possible. If this, if this immigrant kid came here with nothing, didn't speak English, can do it, you can do this. Canada's the most amazing country in the world. If you can't make it work in Canada, dude, you got bigger problems. Sorry. You live in freaking Canada, man. Jim Rohn, man. It's easy. It doesn't get better. It's easy. It does not get better. You're already incredibly blessed. All you have to do is realize that you are and then, and then, and then, and then do something with it. Yeah. People, so many people are waiting. I'm waiting until this happens. Stop waiting and just do it. Just freaking do it, man. And dream about the life you want. And it, like, it took me years to have a white on white Lambo. That's what I wanted. And I dreamed mm. about it. And then I did buy it. I think that's a great spot to wind down, man. Thank you, man. I'm all, fuck. I'm wearing sweatpants right now. It's COVID. I'm going to go put some pants on and get some fucking work done. I'm Come inspired. On, <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> Ben, thanks so much for sharing your wisdom with us. Um, that was amazing. Um, if anyone is interested in reaching out to you or getting some more information about what you do, about Cashflow Tribe, how should they contact you? Humble.ceo. Just go to humble.ceo. Everything is there. Or just hop over to Instagram, Ben Humble CEO. I, I, I love that you got .ceo. I saw that the other day and I'm like, that is fucking cool <laughs> i thought it was dot co.com and i'm like i looked it up on google i'm like no he got dot co that is amazing that ceo yep just head over there all the stuff is there connect with me we've got some books dropping we actually just dropped one right now called canadian real estate secrets exposed just put that book out so there's a free there's a free copy for every canadian just head over to the website you can grab it you can grab the, the downloadable pdf right there and then my other book um, is coming out next week which i'm very excited about i'll keep it at hush hush until the big launch so congrats details on that thank you congrats man i can't wait to get to know you better you're a really cool guy um thank you again for being on the podcast yeah thank you my brother appreciate you